for cannot be saved because they are not effectually drawn by the Father. They may even be called by the ministry of the Word and may receive some ordinary working of the Spirit without being saved. Much less can any be saved who do not receive the Christian religion, no matter how diligently they live their lives according to the light of nature and the teachings of the religion they profess. Okay, so we, we mostly got through that here last week, and we had some discussion about how does it work in the mind of someone, because uh, we were talking about unconverted clergy and what a problem that was um, in the post-Reformation era in certain Protestant circles, uh, that it became a real problem that men went into the ministry just because it was a, it was a highly regarded job, it gave you a certain amount of cultural clout, it was stable, it paid okay, um, and you were respected in the community, and so it became... Uh, well, it became a thing, and, and many unconverted people went into the ministry in that time, and the Puritans, one of the things that they wanted to do was to make sure that we, it sounds bizarre, but to make sure that we have a believing ministry. That, <laughs> we kind of take that for granted today, right? Well, of course ministers should be believers, but uh, that is not always the case. Um, there was a story that came to mind that I didn't tell last week because I didn't remember who it was, but I went back and fact-checked it, so... The psychology, what's happening with a man who enters the ministry knowing he's unsaved? And I'll tell you one story of how this works. It's actually one of the signers, I looked for the names here, the names of the signers are not in this booklet, but one of the main authors and signers of this document was a, a minister, a British Baptist minister by the name of Benjamin Keach. In fact, he wrote a whole catechism that went with this confession called Keech's Catechism or the Baptist Catechism. I'm not sure if any of you have ever heard of that. But Benjamin Keech was a very well-known minister in England. Uh, and he had a 19-year-old son who wanted absolutely nothing to do with Christ. He was bitter about his dad's ministry. He was angry at the church. He wanted to go sow his wild oats. And he knew too many people in Britain, so it was time to move to Pennsylvania. So as a 19-year-old boy, he moved to Pennsylvania um, to get away from his parents and to essentially rebel from the Christian faith. But once he was here, he realized he needed to make a living if he was going to make some money and if he wanted to stay living here. So he started dressing up as a clergyman, right? And clergymen in those days, you could tell that they had a black robe and the white, the white ribbons, right? And so he started to dress like a clergyman, and he was a very gifted public speaker. So he actually took a job at a Baptist church as a preacher, because he was a very good speaker, uh, and he knew the Bible well enough from being catechized in it and being trained by his dad, he could preach biblical sermons the whole time knowing he was a hypocrite. Uh, and there's one story in, I think, 1698, uh, in this little congregation in Pennsylvania that had asked him to preach, he was preaching law and gospel the way he had been taught to do, and all of a sudden he just stopped. And people in the crowd thought, this guy's having a seizure or something struck him, he's having a stroke, something's happening to this guy. And he just stops and he says, I was just converted. He was converted by his own preaching. He came under conviction of God's law as he was preaching it and accepted his own invitation to be born again. Okay, does God tell the best stories? <laughs> yeah. I would say yes, God tells the best stories. And there's other stories like that too, of men who were suddenly converted by their own preaching in real time. So does God work in mysterious ways? 
yes. I don't understand the psychology of going into a profession that you don't believe in, but there are those stories out there. So I think we got it uh, through to the end of footnote 13, uh, and we'll pick up from there. So it says here, the last clause, much less can any be saved who do not receive the Christian religion, no matter how diligently they live their lives according to the light of nature and the teachings of the religion they profess. What's this saying? Who's ever heard pushback on evangelism? Well, I know a lot of atheists who are a lot more moral than you Christians are. Who's heard something like that? Right? I know Mormons who love their wives better than you guys do. Okay? So what? Even if it's true, so what? So we're saved by works now? That's what that is saying. That's saying we're saved by works. Okay? Uh, when I lived in Oregon, there was many Mormon people around us, and they were very pleasant people to live around. They really were. Um, and if they were saved by works, yeah, I don't doubt that there would be uh, a better chance for them than there is for me. But are we saved by works? No, we're not. Okay? So there's a, a real so what question. If say, well, I know so-and-so is more moral than a lot of Christians. Uh, okay. You actually don't have to fight that point. I believe it. Yeah, no, that's probably true. How are you saved? How are you saved? Okay? And further, if you do a deeper dive on the outward morality of people, and I know this is a hard teaching. We've discussed it here. From, a, from the standpoint of God's courtroom, of true righteousness, can an unbeliever do anything righteous? Can an unbeliever do a single righteous thing? The answer is no. No. If you are not in Christ, you are incapable of doing a single righteous thing. Why? Well, what's the root of righteousness? You do it for the glory of? Okay. Can an unbeliever do things for the glory of God? No. So when their outward morality shows up, they're doing it for the, themselves. They're doing it for a good feeling. They're doing it for respect in the community. They're doing it because they've been told to do it. They, they're doing it because it practically works out better. Whatever reason they are. But what you're not seeing is an unjustified person doing something righteous. Cannot happen. Okay? What does it say in Romans? Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. It's sin. Now, if they're volunteering at a soup kitchen, is the homeless guy actually getting fed? Is God using that providentially to actually feed somebody? Well, yes, of course. Okay? God can care for his creation through the deeds of unrighteous people. But is that act moving the needle of justification for them? Absolutely not. Okay? And that's what this is saying. And I know this is a hard teaching, but this is absolutely thoroughly biblical. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Let's say it together. I, we really need to understand this. Okay? Whatever does not proceed from faith is okay. Volunteering at a soup kitchen might be less sinful than cheating on your wife, but you're dripping in sin when you do it. Because you want Steinbeck online to show up there with the camera so everybody in the Southeast knows what a great guy you are. It's sinful. It's sinful in the sense of it will not move 
the needle of justification. It's self-serving. I've given the example before. The most egregious example that I can think of, and forgive me if I've, I'm sure I've shared this before, but it's maybe quite a while back. When I was a kid, the, the famine in Africa moved everybody to tears and all these self-righteous people, you know, I shouldn't say anything poor about Princess Diana, but I could never really stand her because she just did everything for the camera. She was kind of virtue signaler before there was virtue signaling. Um, but there was this movement afoot for all these famous people to do this aid for Africa. And then they released this song, right? And it's Bruce Springsteen and it's Stevie Wonder and all the big names of the day. And they did the song called We Are the World, Right? Now I can hear Joe Cocker's voice, the raspy voice, right? We are the children. Okay, but there's a line in there that tips their hand. We're saving our own lives. Okay? Tina Turner made sure she was crying for the camera in the studio when it panned by. So everybody knows Tina Turner is righteous. Tina Turner is good. Right? Bruce Springsteen is going to heaven when he dies. Why? Because he raised some money for a famine in Ethiopia. Okay? I'm glad they raised that money, and I don't doubt it actually fed some people. But that was a fool's gallery of hypocrites. And they couldn't keep it out of their lyrics. It slipped out. Okay? They said the silent part out loud. We're saving our own lives. Bruce Springsteen is in it for Bruce Springsteen. Okay? And that's not, I love his music. It's not comment on his music. Okay? Ray Charles was there for Ray Charles. He's in it for Ray Charles. Everybody in that studio was in it for themselves. And the self-righteous feeling they got for doing something good for society. That's what this is saying. Much less can any be saved who do not receive the Christian religion no matter how diligently they live their lives according to the light of nature and the teachings of the religion they profess. Okay? So if you're a sincere Jehovah's Witness or a sincere Muslim or a sincere Baha'i, is there salvation for you? Okay? Does sincerity save? It sounds like I'm not talking to a very convinced group of people here. Does sincerity save? No. No. Is there salvation outside of Jesus Christ? Is there righteousness outside of Jesus Christ? Is there moral performance outside of Jesus Christ? No, there's not. Okay? There's not. It must be Jesus Christ or it is, what does Isaiah call our righteous deeds? Filthy rags. Okay? And we clean that up in English. What are those filthy rags? They're menstrual rags. That's what your good deeds look like to God, is a polluted menstrual garment. And he doesn't say that about your unrighteous deeds. That's the good stuff you do looks like that to God. The good things you do look like a used menstrual garment to God. That's the good stuff. What do our unrighteous deeds look like to God? Okay? You must be united to Christ or you will not be saved no matter what your life looks like. Okay? You must be united to Christ. Who wants to take Acts 4, verse 12? Sonia, who wants to take John 4, verse 22? Keith. And then lastly, John 17, verse 3. Keenan. 
Okay, Acts 4.12, go ahead. All right, Sonia, can I ask you a follow-up question? How many names are there under which, under heaven by which we can be saved? Okay, what is that name? Jesus Christ. Yeah, there's one. There's one way to heaven. One. There's one gate. Jesus Christ and nothing else. John 4.22 Mm-hmm. What does that mean, Keith? <laughs> I asked for your commentary. How's that? Well, I think, where did Jesus come out of? The true Jew? Yep. The true Israel? Okay, and there's only one of those. There's only one Jesus Christ. And then John 17:3, Keenan, you had that, right? Okay, amen. So how many true gods are there, Keenan? How many sons has he sent into this world? One. Okay. And I won't get back into it. Too much here, but I, someone came up to me this morning uh, with a question about the message from two weeks ago. Sometimes people think, okay, so, so if this is all true, if Jesus Christ is the only way, and I won't say if, since Jesus Christ is the only way, that means all through history about 326 people are saved, right? Okay. Is this a comment saying that this is an exclusive club, or that this is a sectarian thing? No, it just says there's only one way. Okay? Okay? So, this doesn't mean we believe nine people are saved in history. At least it shouldn't mean that. We can still have a view uh, of evangelism, of expanse, of the kingdom of God being big. This should never be sectarian, or it's, you know, it's only my church, or it's only my tradition, or... That's not what this is saying. This is saying it's only Christ. Okay? It's only Christ. Okay? Only Christ. And if you are a Methodist, or if you are a Baptist, or you are a Presbyterian, or you are an Anglican, and you actually believe in Christ, that's the root of the matter. Not what kind of a background you come from. Are you in Christ? Okay? And of course, the false religions are just automatically out. Um, but this is not meant to be taken in a sectarian way. More discussion on that. How hard is this for us as Christians to accept? Is it hard to accept that unsaved people cannot do anything righteous? That really cuts against the grain, right? Because we live in an age where everyone's awesome, right? Everyone's great. Everyone's trying their best. And we even have whole churches set up to people who are seeking, right? Seeker-sensitive churches. Well, what does Romans 3.11 say? Someone want to pull that one out? Paul, quoting Isaiah, Romans 3, 10 and 11, I believe.
Who wants to read? Does someone have it? Someone want to read it? Hmm. Who's seeking for God, Keith? <laughs> well, I think it's even a little more narrow than that. Who's seeking for God, Keith? Yeah. Yeah. No one. Who are we building these churches for? Okay. Yeah, spiritually dead people. And, and that becomes a problem then that whole churches sometimes get built to entertain goats rather than to feed sheep. And that's a problem. Okay. What you win people with is what you win them to. Okay. And if, if church is about gimmicks and about entertaining the goats, you have to keep doing that more and more to keep them where they're going to be gone. What you win people with is what you win them to, which is why you don't need gimmicks, you just preach the gospel, and if they're one to the gospel, you've got them where you want them, okay? They're not going to be one because it's a cowboy church, or it's a heavy metal church, or we've, you know, the pastor wears spandex and does this really cool dance with an angel leotard and wings. You're a slave to that kind of stuff if you keep doing it, okay? Just preach the gospel. God will do the work. Just preach the gospel. There was, Sean... I think so. I think that's fair. That's right. Okay, so the act itself, if seen just as an act, isn't necessarily wrong. In fact, we can even say it might be right. It's right to volunteer at a soup kitchen. Okay? But if it's a non-Christian doing it because they want to be a good community member, or they want respect, or they want a good feeling inside, well, they're doing it for their own glory. So the action is fine. What's condemning them is their heart. Okay? Um, is it better for you to keep your marriage vows than to break them? Yeah. What if the only reason you're keeping your marriage vows is because the way people are going to look at you? Not because you're dying to yourself and putting your wife ahead of yourself, like the way God says you must. Right action, a condemning motive. It's, it, and, and we frequently do that. We put sin into stuff. And sin is rarely in stuff. Sin's here. I was talking yesterday evening with a Swiss couple. And he says, no, in Switzerland, our, our, uh, our rate of gun ownership is far higher than America. We don't have shootings. Okay? The, guns, the guns aren't doing anything if you don't touch them. Guns are not bad. They're just guns. This is what's wicked. Okay? Do it again for tobacco. Do it again for going to a movie. Do it again for... It's just stuff. But we abuse it. Right? Or, or we 
we use it in an unwise manner, and of course it's sin. Of course it's sin. The act itself, I would say, can, can and will providentially be used by God to do good in providing for his creation. But the intention behind the action is altogether unrighteous. So that person, if they are not in Christ, receive no heavenly reward for it whatsoever. They're unjustified. They're unjustified. God may use their actions to providentially care for and sustain his universe. But that does no spiritual good for the person who did it. The needle hasn't moved in terms of their own personal righteousness. Am I understanding the, the heart of what you're saying? It's, yeah, it's not the stuff. So we need to make a distinction there of between how can God use this and as Christians, we would say providentially he can and does use the actions of unbelievers all the time to sustain his universe. I'm sure some of the food I ate this morning was brought to my house via an unbelieving truck driver. That's God's providence. He's caring for his creation. It's good that he drove his truck. The action is good and fine. The self-glory is what makes something sinful for me or for you. The action itself isn't bad. Like I say, it, the action itself, seen in isolation, impersonally, may be a good action. But for the person doing it, if it's not for the glory of God, they're not escaping condemnation in any way, shape, or form. It's just one more thing that shows the self-centered intentions of our heart, the self-glory. I'm, I'm not sure if I'm explaining that well or if that makes sense. Because if they're going to learn how to tie their shoelaces from an unbeliever, they're in that environment where they're going to learn how to see the world from an unbeliever. Learning how to tie your shoes from a pagan kindergarten teacher isn't bad. But being around that pagan kindergarten teacher who's helping you to see the world her way is cancer. Because your kids are going to start thinking being in that environment, oh, so the world is neutral. Or worse, it's a Marxist world or, or whatever. The shoelaces aren't the problem. The heart of the teacher is the problem, and the heart of the child. Uh, there was a few hands here, Dave, and then Jeremy, and then over here.
Well, sure, because what you're catechizing then is, let's say, if, there, if this isn't part of some kind of gospel-focused ministry, what you're catechizing those people in, what's really important is that you stay alive for another 20 hours. It's an unspoken thing, maybe, but that's what you're being catechized in. Staying alive for another 20 hours is the chief end of man. Because no one's saying otherwise, and they're just giving me the stuff I need to live for another 20 hours, so that must be... Right? Catechesis is unavoidable. It's always happening, either spoken or unspoken, but we're always learning things through customs. Well, sure. So, okay, so the chief end of my life is to learn how to tie my shoes and learn how to spell and do math so I can sit in a cubicle... Um, and never see any ultimate meaning and do that for 100,000 hours and then die. And I think we all want to see bigger than that. The chief end of man is not to spend 100,000 hours in a cubicle and die. The chief end of man is to love God and glorify Him forever. And so that has to be an intentional piece of everything we do. Whether it's farming or tying shoes or learning the alphabet or making a great sculpture. It must be for the glory of God. It, it has to be. Jer uh, Jeremy, and then over here. That's fair. Yeah, and I, I would just say, always ask the glory question. Everything we do, we do for glory. Fact. Everything you do, you do for glory. Even if you're not intentionally thinking about it, you do it because you think that's going to result in a good outcome or make you happy. So always ask the glory question, who's getting the glory in this? Am I living for my own glory or am I dying to self and living for Christ's glory? That, that's the, the dividing line. Rob and then Lisa... Amen. That's right. Well, and, and that's exactly it. And that's, that's what I'm trying to get to is the heart of it, right? Things are just things. They're tools. How are we using it? Where's the glory pointing to? Yep. 
Amen. Lisa. Well, that way everyone can rejoice to know that this church is glorifying God a little bit more than that church. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Yep. Yeah, the old Adam, he dies hard, right? And from a legal standpoint, he is dead. Christ doesn't see the old Adam in us anymore. But in terms of actually working this out, boy, he dies hard. <laughs> right? That is a bare-knuckle fist fight right to the finish line. He dies hard. He always wants glory for himself. Right? He always wants self-service. He always wants to be seen. Right? And even for believers, there's tons of mixed motives. Right? Let's be honest. We might do something 85% for the right motives, but there's still something there that wants to be noticed. Right? There's still something there that wants the praise of man. And, and the goal of the Christian life, the chief end of the Christian life, is to glorify God and love Him forever, enjoy Him forever. Right? And so that means our job is to keep fighting the old Adam and keep pointing uh, to Christ and to His glory and salvation. Pete. Yep. Yep, so if you didn't hear, Pete just shared the story of Nebuchadnezzar who's strutting about, pretty proud of the kingdom he built and God strikes him with insanity. Right? He's walking around on his hands and knees like a moo cow. Okay? Till he repents and God gives him his head back. That's self-glory. It doesn't end. It doesn't end well. Was there another hand here? Sonia. How do you do? Yeah. Keep looking to Christ. And I know that sounds simple and that sounds trite, but it's really true. If we've established the problem isn't here, I don't know if you're on Instagram or not. I sneak onto Instagram through my wife's account. But it's everywhere. <laughs> Men aren't allowed to be on Instagram, I'm pretty sure. So I, I do it pleach. But all the messaging to young ladies like you, what do you keep hearing over and over? You're enough. You're good. You're awesome. Right? Louder for those in the back. Right? You, you just hear that garbage all the time. But what does the Bible say? The, the Bible says the problem's in here. And the solution is found out there. And everyone else is going to tell you the problem's out there. Okay? 
The problem is guns. The problem is men. The problem is white men. The problem is the climate. The problem is, it's always out there, the system, right? Systemic racism. The problem's always out there, and then you're being catechized. Then where do you look for salvation? In here. And the Bible points to you exactly opposite. This is the problem. I need a savior out here. I need to get outside of myself. I need to look to Christ. I need to be in his word. Because if you're getting fed anywhere else, you're getting fed lies. Even nice sounding lies. So to put sin to death, for the old Sonia to be killed, so that the new Sonia can be raised up in glory, that is just hard work. And it's intentionally cutting against the grain every morning. I need Christ's mercy for today. To get my schoolwork done, to be a light in a school, to encourage my friends towards godliness, um, to say no when sinful options are presented to you. And it's going to feel a lot like it's three steps forward and two steps back. And there might even be seasons where it's two steps forward and three steps back, but you've got to keep... <laughs> you've got to stay grafted. Union with Christ is, is how we do it. Amen. So Rob said something very practically wise. If you didn't hear it, it was in reference to quitting smoking. Right? So if you say, okay, I'm 18 and my goal is sinless perfection and so now I've got to look at age 60 from age 18 and I've got to be sinlessly perfect to be saved. That's so overwhelming, you will never start, right? So what Rob was saying is he told himself, I can have tomorrow's cigarettes, what I don't need is the next one, okay? And you do that enough times, and then you don't need the next one either, okay? Uh, and I, I try to coach young guys fighting porn or whatever that way too, okay? The goal now isn't to never look at this stuff again for the next 30 years, Go today. Finish today without looking at that garbage. Okay? And go today. And then say, okay, I got one day under my belt. Can I do two? Right? And, and yes, you'll fail again. We both know that. But can you always put a few more pounds on the bar each time? Okay? And do one more rep each time. Okay? The goal isn't sinless perfection tomorrow morning. The goal is the trajectory. Okay? Sometimes it doesn't matter how fast you're moving as much as the direction you're going, okay? If you're moving in the right direction imperfectly, keep going, okay? Put another five pounds on the bar and then do two more reps. And then once you know you can do that, then do it again, okay? We're not looking for sinless perfection tomorrow morning. That's not the Christian life. 
Okay? God is perfect. He's not a perfectionist. So keep fighting. And when you fall, then you ask for repentance. You know that God is faithful and just to forgive your sins. You wipe yourself off, and you're going to say, in the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to fight this thing again. Okay? And I'm going to go tomorrow. And then I'm going to go another tomorrow. Okay? And next time, the streak is going to be three weeks instead of a week and a half. Good. You're, you're getting somewhere. Okay? But fighting sin in our lives, whatever it is, whatever it is, Rob talked about smoking. For the next guy, it's porn. For the next guy, it's anger. For the next woman, it's envy or nagging. Or Put five more pounds on the bar, two more reps. Thank the Lord that that happened, and then do it again tomorrow. Okay? Do it again tomorrow. Amen. Yeah, so Rob just added the thanksgiving piece. When you've had some success, be thankful. And fighting out of thanksgiving is a lot different animal than fighting out of fear or fighting out of anger. Okay? Fighting out of a thankful heart is a potent, potent thing. Rob, can I ask you to close in prayer for us, please? Amen.